Hey everybody, we're back. Cluster Fudge. Uh, today we are minus Carlos, but uh, we're still okay on good terms. It's just Carlos couldn't be with us today. Uh, instead, I'm joined with an old friend, Alex. Alex hey, hello, is hello. an old friend who uh, not only have I known for decades, but he's also a fellow avid Transformers fan. That's and we're right. going to discuss Transformers as well as some other sci-fi related topics today. Sounds good. Yeah, so um first thing I we want to talk about um I know there was a new Transformers show coming out on Netflix. Not sure I know too too much about it. Um but uh I think it's called War of the Primes or something like that. Uh I know on YouTube there was a preview of it and it looks really really cool. The designs are very true to the G1 design of the transformers so it's it's not like a funky new take on their their looks it's, it's very faithful to yeah. the original animation and and uh, toy design yeah and and you know there there's actually it's funny because my my son is four and he's he's obsessed with the transformers um and he finds all these new shows i mean they've been releasing shows left and right there's prime there's this there's that whatever and you know i noticed peter cullen drops his voice on a lot of the shows too which is really cool and 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 holds true to it and really makes the show look so much better and there's some stuff i've i've queued in i'd like to sit down with him and watch some more um but i did notice i was at the store the other day i was at walmart because a lot of people have been advertising with this quarantine and everything, um, all this transformer stuff and collecting things because there's not much else to do. And they had some toys in the store, and it said, uh, you know, as seen on Netflix. So I was looking at the toys, and the I might get a couple of them. The transformations look really cool. They look really good to the original characters from the G1 series. Uh, I was really interested in the fact that they had a mirage that was a little off color. I think he was grayish, and he was actually a Decepticon. And he had Decepticon symbols, but he still turned into a Formula One race car and looked very true to the character. Just kind of like, you know, evil Kirk from the enemy within just kind of a kind of a thing there. And that looked cool. Um, They had a hound that was pretty much the same green Jeep. A couple others that I saw, a couple new characters. I got to look into that. And what's the name of the series again? War of the Primes? Uh, I I believe it's called War of the Primes. What does it say on the box here? Because you've got Um, a toy here. Well, this isn't actually... I did bring a toy here. This is from a different uh, line. This is called from Transformers Cyberverse. Okay. So um, just getting into that, yeah. um, For some reason... I always wanted to see if they wanted if they made an Alpha Trion toy because I always love the character of Alpha Trion, you know. Um, For those just, of you that don't know, Alpha Trion was like the the mentor of Optimus Prime, and the the I guess he was the previous was he the did he ever hold the Matrix himself or it no? Did, it never really said if he held the Matrix, but I mean I guess he's considered like the father of the Autobots. He's the mm-hmm. one that transformed Optimus Prime into or rebuilt him into Optimus Prime from Orion Pax when he was destroyed by Megatron. Um, as told in the episode War Dawn. Um, and and there, I remember in the Marvel Comics number one when the Autobots were going to do their expedition to find new energy or protect Cybertron from an asteroid uh, storm that uh, Optimus Prime was consulting an elderly-looking Autobot that had a long beard. And he didn't mm-hmm. address him by name, but he looked like he was Alpha Trion, the, the character that you wind up seeing in the Sunbow cartoon, which was quite a few episodes, like months, almost a year after the, that issue was published. Oh, that's cool. Um, but uh, it's, I always found it interesting that 
the tech specs of the Megatron and Optimus Prime. Megatron is the Decepticon leader. Optimus Prime is the Autobot commander. The right. Decepticon commander is right there on that table, that shockwave. Uh-huh. And he was considered the commander of the Decepticons for whatever reason. But in uh, Transformers number one, Optimus refers to the Alpha Trion looking uh, character as leader. Okay. And so it, it did kind of imply that Optimus was answering to someone, but it was never referenced again. On uh, the cartoon, mm. clearly he has this mentor, Al- Alpha Trion, and you learn more about the Orion Pax. Uh, history right. I'm watching season two of Transformers uh, but now you've got a, a an action figure of Alpha Trion here yeah in fact my son um, was very big into uh, Alpha Trion and everything and he actually um, thought if they made a toy so I actually looked it up and uh, I this is this is what I found so um, I, I think went ahead and been, ordered it um, like maybe some fan made Alpha Trions out there but maybe this is the first official Alpha Trion? I'm not sure. Or it's hard there was to like say. an expensive uh, masterpiece version of Alpha Trion that I've also seen. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I've seen a different design than the one you've got here, but this one looks pretty nice. Yeah. Let's see. We're taking them so out. So this is taking them Cyber... Out. This is Transformers Cyberverse Cyberverse. Power of the Spark is what okay. it's called. That's the full... It looks a little... I don't know how to say it. A little, little kitty-ish mm-hmm. um, versus like the original box and artwork that we're used to seeing with like the G1 Transformers. It's a little bulky, little light uh, colored paint. Like it's it's bright. The the colors are bright. Yeah. So you could see how it would appeal to a younger age group. It's a little more durable than even our original Transformers because those things, if you remember, could break quite easily when you were transforming. They could. Them. I don't think anybody has an intact Jazz <laughs> original G1 because yeah. that thing was always breaking its arms. Um, first look, I mean, I, I like the detail. I like the beard. That, that's mm-hmm. what really drew me, drew me to it when I when I saw it online um, just because he looked like he looked and I mean he does look kind of like kind of bulked up and muscular and kind of big and has some some wings going on here um it's definitely plasticky and not metal um as I would have liked it to be more metal like you know some of the ones that we're used to seeing Mm -hmm. um the pieces do seem pretty durable um I'll hand it over to you see what your thoughts are real um, quick from but yeah like you said I I I, I've always liked that design of Alpha Trion because like really how many Transformers had facial hair. Right. You know, I mean, him and Unicron, I think, are the only ones that come to mind. Right. Um, but, uh, so yeah, just taking a look at this. Yeah, it's, it is, it's fully plastic, but uh, the plastic mold here on all the pieces are, are relatively thick. So it does look like something that uh, could withstand the test of time. And then he has an alternate mode, which seems to be like a Cybertronian vehicle. Yes. Uh, makes perfect sense because he never went on Earth and he was never transformed by the Ark or anything else, as was this other character I've got here on the coffee table, Shockwave. I've got a G1 Shockwave here with us um, comparing the two. And if you know anything about the original Shockwave, he is pure tried and true, hardcore. He's got die cast metal parts. He's got the plastic parts. He's got, you know, battery powered uh, he's got a, a working light on the gun, and uh, he's just plain awesome 
as far as original figures. He he very much is. Uh, he he's staring at me right now, which is making me a little nervous. But um, I have never seen one actually in all the collection I've had. I've always wanted to get one and never came across one. Never seen one in person until today. And I'm actually really impressed at the the weight and how how well put together it is. Much more than a lot of the other many of the other G1 Transformers. Um, he stands pretty tall and and. It's it's kind of an impressive piece, especially, you know, being 35 or so years old. Yeah, so. a Japanese original concept of it. I remember because I had when I was growing up, this is my brother-in-law's, but when I was growing up, I had the what's known as Shack Wave, which was uh, readily available at Radio Shacks in the mid 80s. And the, you have more of the design specifications on the side of the box. Like when they made that toy in Japan, it was meant to be a multi-changing robot. Like you could use it for multiple purposes. Either it was a gun, either it was a spaceship, it was a uh, battle station platform. It was, of course, a robot. Uh, but I imagine this thing all sorts of things. Like it was like a a fifty foot tall space station that you would take an elevator up through its leg and do all sorts of things in it. It, it was an absolutely fun toy to to mess with when you were growing up. And you sure. had nothing else to play with. But at the same time, it doubled for the character that I saw in the original episode of Transformers. And he was maybe the first Decepticon you even see, if not one of the first, uh, there on Cybertron. And he was left to to watch Cybertron as the Decepticons took off to fight the Autobots. Yeah, no, nothing says loyalty than waiting four million years for your leader to wake up. I mean, <laughs> you gotta, you got to hand it to Shockwave. Seriously. That's... That's You've got people there. trying to stab him in the back like Starscream, and then this guy's waiting four million years yeah. and has no ambition on Cybertron. And that's the cartoon version. If you read the comic book, uh, Shockwave was extremely backstabbing and really? very oh, much power-hungry. Shockwave in the comic book, he was kind of a cross between the Starscream we know and Mr. Spock. Because oh. he's constantly referring to logic and like how logically he should be the leader of the Decepticons, and he often overthrew Megatron. And in there, were, so the the four issue limited series of the comic book originally ended with the Autobots winning because Sparkplug had contaminated the energy source of the Decepticons, and so yay, we won. But. <laughs> What wound up happening when they realized, let's not just end it at issue four. These characters are extremely popular. The toy line is very popular. So what they had was Shockwave fly in and just blow everyone away. Wow. Everyone gets okay. destroyed. So like all the Autobots that were celebrating their victory just get wiped out by a Shockwave in gun mode. And then from there, the only surviving uh, characters you had for a while were Ratchet who was out on a mission, who didn't get blown away, and then Shockwave was trying to assemble new Decepticons. So it was very much a different uh, take in the comic books than the cartoon was. Yeah, I wouldn't mind. I know um, the last time we spoke, you were talking about... Whoops, look at that. I already broke a piece off. Well, now, it's, um, it's not broken. It's just the, the piece has been separated from its joints. Right. Correct. And I remember when I first started recollecting with Beast Wars, that was very common where a piece would get separated, but you could very easily snap it back into place and it was no permanent damage. I've noticed that a lot about these Cyberverse toys is that they're made like that and the pieces detach all the time because there's been a lot of toys that my son has played with, and of course he's four and he doesn't know to be careful with them. 
so well, but uh, constantly there's arms and legs being popped out of sockets and stuff like that versus... I don't know. I feel that the original, the metal ones were, were just made a little bit better and maybe not for a four-year-old, but I, I never really had a problem other than jazz where, where pieces were breaking off from, you know, G1 toys or toys that were made out of metal or, you know, even like the alternator series. I mean, the thing is, is they weren't completely metal. And like right. I had a, a G1 sound wave that I was having him fly through the sky and I wanted to recline his head backwards to look where he was going, and the head and neck completely snapped apart. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Really? And uh, so I had a headless sound wave for most of my childhood. It was, it was kind of a bummer because he was an awesome character. And there was no way to put it back on. No, it oh, he just snapped apart, and uh, it was it was a clean break. Huh. So I'm not really sure. I know another thing with these Cyberverse toys, which I've seen before. For my son, the instructions are very confusing mm. um, on how, how to do it. I mean, I remember the old, uh, the original G1 instructions. I mean, they were in color, and they would be three steps. <laughs> you know, even though you had to manipulate about 40 parts to get them from vehicle to robot, it would be change, change, done. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah, and that was the that was the test of your ability. Yeah. If you could re- transform them without looking at the instructions. These so, days, it's not an option for many of these things. Yeah, and I mean, I'm struggling with this one right here. I'm not really <laughs> even sure how it goes. Pretty much probably because he's a Cybertronian vehicle, and I've never been to Cybertron, so I wouldn't know what they look like. But, um, you know, he's I don't remember spending that much money on him. Maybe $20. Bucks. Um, he could be worth $20. Bucks. Um, it's pretty cool to have a character. I'm sure at some point I'll figure out how to go ahead and transform him to robot or to vehicle form, but... I, I do like the look of the character. Um, mm-hmm. I do like as a display piece if you put him with the rest of the Transformers. Yeah. Um, he does look like he'd go well with Optimus and the others. Yeah. It'd be pretty cool to put like him with, you know, maybe Optimus, Rodimus, Ultra Magnus, like a bunch of people that were had leadership roles in the past. Mm-hmm. Looks like he has a laser gun that's or something like that that's built into when him. When he's There's, in a vehicle mode, I yeah. think that comes oh, out. Oh, maybe that's it. Okay. And... There's no additional weapon. There's one on each side here. Oh, okay. There's no additional weapon. Well, that comes he never with had a handgun in the show. So. Yeah, they didn't really expand much on his character. I wish they would have right. done a little bit more with him. So what we know from the Sunbow cartoon is he had some sort of connection to Vector Sigma. Yes. Because he was compatible with him. They they were uh, looking for the key to Vector Sigma. I guess um, Megatron had it. And like, well, now what do we do? And he's and uh, Alpha Tron's like, don't worry, I'm compatible. And he plugs himself in, but then he had to like sacrifice his life to merge with Vector Sigma in order to give the aerial bots life. life. Right. Um, but that that's that's interesting because according to Vector Sigma, before Cybertron was, he was. So if Alpha Trion is oh, closely related to Vector Sigma, that means Alpha Trion is from the early days, maybe even preceding. Cybertron, or he was the first actual Transformer built via Vector Sigma. And it's so confusing, too, with the with the lore of it, because, you know, then the Quintessons come into it later, and they're, you know, you have the consumer products and the military goods to make the Autobots and Decepticons, but then it's like, well, where does Alpha Trion and the robots before him come into play? Mm-hmm. Were they related to the Quintessons? Were they later? Were they original? It's kind of confusing to me. Cybertron looks like a factory it doesn't look like a planet they call it a planet but it looks like a man-made or you know an artificially made 
you know, factory. Right. And that's that's how I always figured. But then you throw in these other characters, and you're just like, I don't know if that's if they were there before, or if that if there's some sort of you know, religious lore with like Vector Sigma and the Matrix. I mean, it's kind of gets very spiritual with that, as the and the history and the ghosts and all that stuff, um, which which makes it very interesting to me. You know, they leave it ambiguous and they leave it up to you to figure out. Yeah, and then you also have different continuities. Like in the comic book, you have uh, Unicron and Primus being two opposite, uh, like a yin and yang force where there's an equal and opposite force of Unicron, which is Primus. And okay. apparently Primus's planetary mode oh. is Cybertron. So Cybertron would be able to transform into Primus as a robot. Okay. Uh, and that's what all the Autobots worship as their lord. You see in later episodes, like in Beast Wars and such, they, they say, by Primus, no. And, uh, and on top of everything, the original script for Transformers the movie... Uh-huh. Uh, involved them utilizing the Matrix in order to get to the center of Cybertron, and then they would plug the Matrix into the center of Cybertron, and that would activate its ability to transform. And Cybertron as a robot would battle Unicron, Unicron. in its kind of climactic conclusion, which makes somewhat more sense than just opening up the Matrix and blowing him up. Yeah, it does. Um, that would have been a cool battle to see, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, the movie's not without its faults. I know I know. you said that your daughter had first seen the movie about a week or two or something ago you had mentioned and mm-hmm. said she had some concerns with it. And it was, it was yeah, they were on point. They were the same concerns that we all had. That, you know, why why couldn't they put Optimus back together like, like they did for uh, Ultra Magnus and, you know, a, lo- a lot of other things. But, yeah. um, you know, I mean, the movie was built to, to you know, have new toys and to sell toys, and that's mm-hmm. what the whole show is. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's it was just cool that the writers took a lot of time to make an awesome story that we fell in love with. I mean, yeah. it's something that they didn't even need to do, but they did it yep. for us, which was really cool. And not only the writers, but the, uh, the voice actors breathed life that yes. the original writers of the comic book couldn't even... Like Bob Budiansky, I don't think he really understood the soul and personalities of a lot of these characters. Like he'd write those tech specs, but he didn't really know how to make them human. Like they, they, they were very stiff in their, not only appearance in the comic books, but in their dialogue and, and how they acted in the comic books. Whereas when you watch the cartoon, these actors down, Dan Gilveson was told, Oh, this character Bumblebee, he's like, um, he's like the kid of the group. And he's like, right. Oh, I can latch onto that. And oh, so he okay. portrayed Bumblebee as a little kid who looked up to the Autobots as like their older siblings. And it made sense when these when these actors thought of human characteristics to imbue on the robots, whereas Bob Budiansky in the comic book just wrote them as robots with quote unquote personality quirks. But he didn't quite understand how to make them just human like. Yeah, and I, and I think that aspect is what failed a lot of the movies, um, you know, the Michael Bay movies, mm. because, um, you know, they made him robots with, like, a little bit of quirks instead of what you said about, like, the voice actors did in the original series, which made it more appealing. I mean, you know, you can listen to interviews of Peter Cullen about how his inspiration for the character came from his brother, who had returned from Vietnam, a different person, and he was, you know, kind of very stoic and very controlled in his actions and very... 
you know, powerful, but soft spoke, like speak softly and carry a big stick kind mm-hmm. of, kind of person. And he said, that's how Optimus Prime should be. That was his inspiration for the voice and for how he acted in the show. Um, I think one of the most interesting quotes he gave of his brother, Larry was that he recommended he be strong enough to be gentle. Yes. And I think that's a, it's it. a fascinating note. Like it's a great acting note and it's a great character analysis of someone like Optimus Prime. Like he is, he's a very powerful character, but he is so powerful. He doesn't have to show it. And that's mm-hmm. why he can be so gentle with humans and with other transformers. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you can go through the, uh, the first three episodes, you know, more than meets the eye and, and just Optimus is full with just, uh, you know, great, great lines about, uh, you know, when they thought the battle was lost and Huffer was saying uh, they're much bigger and stronger than we are. We're not are. fighters like they We're are. We're not fighters like they are. And he's like, we must have courage. We can't ignore the danger. We must conquer it. I mean. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Great you know, quotable great lines. Great quotable lines. You know. That, that first miniseries, More Than Meets the Eye, also includes his other character, Ironhide, getting shot down by uh, St- Skywarp. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ironhide's like. I know what you're about. He's to say, ready yeah. to go back into battle, and, and he said, "There's a fine line between being a hero and being a memory." That's right. Another and great line. That is such a great line. Uh huh. And I mean, just in the movie, I mean, the fact that they write and he just shows up, and Megatron must be stopped, and he says, "One shall stand, one shall fall." Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't see that in any sort of kids where somebody's just, I'm, I'm just telling you, we're going to fight to the death right now, and this is made for children, and it's yeah. just, but it's so heroic and so powerful. It's just. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's very inspiring. I mean, you know how we both feel about the character. Oh, for sure. So it's just, I'm sure other people. And and yeah, you've heard it. If you've heard any reviews on Optimus Prime, you've heard all this. But yeah. It is it is so true. Like, our generation that loves Transformers, we can't help but uh, but kind of idolize Optimus Prime. And, and he's he's kind of a moral compass. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Any, uh, any final thoughts on this? Final thoughts more? on Alpha Trion? Um, I like him. So you're saying he goes for 20? I don't remember. I think okay. it, it was somewhere. It was definitely somewhere between twenty and thirty, depending on the shipping, or if you have Amazon Prime, something oh, okay. like that. It wasn't terribly expensive. All right. So yeah, if, if you want a, a relatively affordable uh, shelf decor for your collection of Transformers, uh, someone who looks like Alpha Trion, the the one who, according to season three of Transformers, passed on the Matrix to uh, Optimus Prime. Then uh, check this guy out from Cyberverse. Yes, Transformers Cyberverse. I was talking with my daughter, and um, she's 13, and she's finishing up some schoolwork. Everybody's at home, you know, doing the distance learning and all that stuff. And I told her today that if she does well with schoolwork, that she's thinking about getting her Disney Plus. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she was interested. I was a little confused because, you know, you figure Disney Plus is more for kids um, with the Disney movies and stuff like that, even though maybe at 13, you know, you like some of the Pixar stuff. And I know they have the Marvel movies and, the, and you know, Star Wars and so forth. But, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if you know a lot about Disney Plus. Well, I do what... have Disney Plus. Oh, I okay. got it back in November. With it, I think it was within a month of it starting. Uh, so it was somewhat halfway through the Mandalorian run, which I enjoyed. I thought it was an enjoyable... As far as Star Wars TV series is, I mean, it's the only live-action one 
you can find sure that exist uh but i do think it's got a great amount of fan service and i think it's got a great amount of character development and action so i think it is one of the few series out there that's worthy of the name Star Wars, in my opinion. So it beats out the Ewoks Christmas special. It beats out the Ewoks, the entire Ewok series, okay. whether you're talking the animated, Saturday morning right. animated, <laughs> the droids animated. This is a little bit better than that. Okay, just a touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I recommend it over those. Um, but uh, also, it, sh- it does show the Clone Wars. They're doing new episodes of the CGI Clone Wars. I did see that. And there, so they just, even a couple days ago, they came out with a new episode. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed Clone Wars. Some episodes more than others, but again, you're, you're panning for gold in any of these shows. I've heard that. I've heard, I've heard, uh, I haven't gotten into Clone Wars, but everyone I've talked to said that I have to get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's excited about this last season. I've read that, you know, this is the last thing that George Lucas actually is putting his hand into oh, to no go kidding. ahead and develop. Hmm. Um, and he had a lot of input in this season. I think it's season seven. Wow. This last season. So, I mean, that's really cool. If, if you're a diehard Lucas guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a minority. I know. Um, it's like we talked about just to briefly not to go off topic, but going to star Wars. Cause you could talk hours for star Wars, but, All right. um, you know, back in the day growing up, Alan, you were big into Star Wars. I was like, yeah, I like the movies and so forth. But when I saw particularly Episode 2, mm-hmm. I got hooked. Oh, interesting. I don't know what it was about Episode 2. <laughs> and it's not so much like the love story everything. But, I mean, when Yoda walks in with the cane and drops it and starts battling Dooku, I'm like, I'm in. Like, mm. this is okay. And then I loved Revenge of the Sith. You know, you can pick apart these movies left, right, upside down, whatever. I loved Revenge of the Sith. Um, and, and I was into it. The, the last trilogy, seven, eight, nine, we're just going to put that on, uh, <laughs> we won't talk about that, mm-hmm. but, um, I have not seen solo. I've heard good things about it, but I absolutely loved rogue one. I know we saw that together. I know mm-hmm. you weren't a huge, huge fan. Right. I thought that movie was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, from start to finish the Darth Vader scene, just everything about that movie was just really, really well done. Um, so I'm, I got big into star Wars just basically with the prequels, which were all Lucas. And I know everybody was like, Oh, the midi chlorines and this doesn't make (laughs) any sense. And I want to be a purist and whatever. And, you know, I just take them for what they are. I'm entertained. I like the story. I mean, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker is one of the most dynamic characters in all of moviedom. Mm -hmm. And it's about his rise and fall. Mm -hmm. And and I like it could have been done better. Sure. But it was done the way Lucas wanted to get it done. And I enjoy it. And that's. Yeah, I mean, we can we can debate, you know, opinions. But uh, at the end of the day, Lucas was like, "Eh, I want to do it this way. So it's like, okay, well, that's that's the way it is. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you can either choose to watch it or not watch it. Um, Yeah, there's I guess leading up to those prequels, because there was so much speculation based on the information that was out there. Mm-hmm. So off the bat, making Anakin eight years old when Obi-Wan Kenobi first meets him mm-hmm. is contrary to what most of us were led to believe in watching the original trilogy. Um, what One of the few things Obi-Wan even tells Luke about his father is when I first met him, he was already an excellent pilot. Well, already that doesn't make much sense because Anakin didn't do any flying in front of Obi-Wan in the movie. You right. do see Anakin accidentally fly a starship towards the end of the movie. Well, the pod race. And the pod race. And Obi-Wan didn't even witness the pod race. He was back on the ship. So he, it was only Qui-Gon watching it happen. Yeah. But it could have been any, on TV. You never yeah, know. Yeah. But in any case, like, 
it seemed like what they were setting up because if you read the book of Star Wars and hear some of the dialogue because uh, Obi-Wan in that same conversation says, I hear you've become an excellent pilot yourself. Right. Uh, Luke Skywalker apparently pilots the T-16 Skyhopper, which you see him flying around a toy when uh, 3PO is taking his oil bath. Mm-hmm. If you look in the backdrop of that same scene, you also can see that same ship in the backdrop, a portion of it. And okay. it's it's interesting because Lucas really did try to justify how Luke could fly a fighter at the end of the movie and blow up the Death Star. Because mm-hmm. he thought, well, if no one sees this kid ever flying, how am I going to justify him saving the day at the end? So he he in the book in particular, he made sure to make a note that the same military contractor built his T-16 Skyhopper as that designed the X-Wing mm. in the end of the movie. None of that's in the movie. And honestly, if they put it in the movie, it probably would have slowed the pace of the movie down. Absolutely. So I understand why that's not in the movie. Sure. But I find that fascinating that Lucas had that kind of forethought to think, I'm going to include all these details because it's it doesn't make sense to me why a kid would be able to do this. But right. uh, no, I, I find all this stuff fascinating. Um, one of the things I think the prequels had was someone interceding with Lucas saying, okay, we don't have time for all these details. It's slowing down the pace. And so because no one was superseding Lucas when the prequels were coming out, then you did see stuff that bogged down the, uh, the pace of the plot. Um, but there were a lot of things I've learned even recently about the original Star Wars movie, which editing even changed the actual uh, story telling of the movie and you can find this on youtube it's called Mm -hmm. how star wars was saved in the edit and his wife martha marcia marcia lucas i think it's marcia lucas okay i think she uh, she did this one of the most brilliant edits of star wars is that the original plot um of the conclusion of the climax Mm -hmm. did not have yavin the moon of yavin in danger of being blown up by the death star the Death Star was actually out in, out in space, yeah. and the Rebels were going to go and blow it up. But in having Yavin and where Leia was conducting the, the battle plans and all that be in danger, mm-hmm. it upped the stakes dramatically and made that climax and resolution that much more powerful. And that's funny you said that, because I didn't even know that that was going on until I was older. When I originally saw the movie, I thought that they were out in space. Mm, I interesting. Didn't, I didn't catch that because I was a little kid. Until I was older watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, you know, they kept they kept saying the rebel base is within range, and then I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, they got to do this now or it's all over. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's cool stuff, man. That's mm-hmm. cool stuff for sure. So yeah, so Disney Plus worthwhile? I think so. It's not expensive. I mean, yeah, I, I was gonna do the whole year for seventy bucks. Exactly. So um, that comes out to like what five something a month? Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's, yeah. it's inexpensive. Like I think you get your money's worth um, through a year's worth of it. And if you've got kids, they're gonna find something on there. But there's tons of stuff on there. When's the last time you saw Last Starfighter? Not oh last. My God. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Oh. Correction. Um, Flight of the Navigator. 
Last oh, I love that movie. The kids would love that. Yeah. Flight of the Navigators yeah. on there. We showed that to our daughter mm-hmm. um, about a month ago. She loved it. Yeah. And that's like, a great movie. We haven't seen it in decades. Right. And seeing it today, it's like, you know what? This is an underrated movie. And I got so much more out of it as an adult. Really? As a kid, I remember seeing those previews going, oh, it's about a kid that flies a spaceship. Cool. I'll go see it. And there's all this spookiness going on. And it's like, dude, this kid just lost. 12 years of his life uh-huh. what is happening like it seemed as a kid i was like this is scary <laughs> like, yeah yeah i was really feeling like there's more of a horror aspect to this movie than it was creepy yeah and then and then i know they try to turn it around and even though i liked it better when the when the robot or the computer or whatever was acting more robotic but then it got all like silly mm-hmm. and started talking like johnny five and be like hey max or whatever his name was you know like getting all silly it was uh it was actually paul rubens and he was doing a little oh, nod to his it? peewee character nice. in it Nice. And he, he has a few peewee laughs in it. But I remember being told that I was like, that's not true because that didn't say peewee Herman in the end credits. It didn't even say Paul Rubens in the end credits. It was like oh. an, a, a, a fake name. Up a name. Yeah. yeah. So nice. I don't know what that was about. I guess he didn't want to uh, be associated with it. I have no idea. So I was, um, you know, I know you work at Disney and everything. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's funny. I just guy come come over my house the other day and uh, he was doing some uh, work. He put a new door in for me. And I guess he was talking. We were talking about Disney. He was mentioned. I guess his wife was uh, some sort of higher up at Disney and mm-hmm. said something about um, they were bored, you know, nothing to do, whatever. They were like, let's take a ride down there. I mean, they had all the roads shut down, cops, this mm-hmm. and that. But she had some sort of credentials that she was able to actually go through. Oh, and they actually walked in. They just want, She just wanted to go inside the park. Were you with park. her or she's just no, describing no, no. it? I, I don't even know her. I know him. This okay. was his okay. wife. And they said they just walked into the park with, like, no one there. And just this is Magic see, Kingdom? Yeah, Magic Kingdom, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just to see, like, how creepy it is with nobody there, mm-hmm. you know. But... You know, she travels like she goes to all of them, like Shanghai, Tokyo, mm-hmm. uh, Paris and helps. I'm not sure what she does. But he was mentioning all that. And they were talking about, believe it or not, the stories that they're looking to try to reopen a lot sooner than later. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know exactly how they're going to do it, if they're going to limit attendance, if they're going to up the ticket price stuff that we've kind of talked about. But a lot of these people talking about, well, Disney's not going to open until 2021. They're like, they want to open as oh, for quick sure. as, as it's they can. It's tens of millions of dollars yeah. being lost a day yeah. that is happening. So, yeah, they want, and obviously they're concerned about safety. Honestly, also, credit them for a lot. Like, before it was mandatory in the state of Florida to shut down, they shut down. Mm-hmm. Like, they shut down in, uh, I think, March 15th or somewhere yeah, around there. Yeah, I think it was the 16th, yeah. Yeah, and so in doing that, and then when we saw when where these spikes in COVID-19 were coming from, a lot of it was around the later days of those parks being open. So mm-hmm. that, just think about that whole week that they voluntarily shut down the parks and sacrificed. They left all that money on the table. Would have ballooned the state of Florida. There are over 75,000 cast members of Disney alone in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And there are only 1,200 cases of COVID-19 to date in Orange County. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. You know, think about how many people could have been infected, just cast members, let alone the guests who come from all over the world. Right? Sure, sure. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal that they shut down. And I think, I know that I'm a cast member, but I think other cast members deserve thanks whether it be the the highest up ceo or the lowest janitorial worker 
Like everyone deserves thanks for what they're sacrificing um, in order to keep people healthy. So we've we've kept things from ballooning a lot worse. I mean, half the cases in the country are in New York City, and look at how densely populated that population is. Yeah, and it's very similar conditions to a typical day in the Magic oh, Kingdom. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So yeah, it's it's. It's amazing what we've been able to accomplish in just doing this. So you were saying about your the, this woman, what was she saying? Like, did they have any ideas? He didn't say any sort of ETA or, or date, but he said it's going to be a lot sooner than you're thinking. Yeah. Um, I, I think would... they're just trying to put a plan in place that they could be safe and reopen. And, you know, once Disney opens, Universal SeaWorld, everything's oh, just yeah. going to fall in the same line, probably with the same restrictions or guidelines, um, you know, just so everybody's on the same page and they want everybody to just be safe mm-hmm. and everything. Uh, yeah. 2021 is not realistic. I don't think. Right. I, I think sometime in the next few months they will have something figured out. I've just brainstormed some ideas and everything you see out in the internet is basically brainstorming. And I guess your friend didn't give any sort of official thing as of yet. I was thinking, cause what Disney has done in the past with their quote unquote hard ticket events they will choose times of the year when it's the slowest. So on those times of the year where Magic Kingdom closes at like like 6 or 7 p.m., they'll reopen the park for people who have these hard tickets for, say, the Halloween theme Mm -hmm. or the Christmas theme, or they've even done pirate and princess-themed hard ticket events. But it's an after-hours event that lasts for like maybe four, four or five hours. And they could do something similar to that on a regular basis during this whole situation. And again, this is not official. This is just me brainstorming. But if they wanted to do, let's say we're going to open the park for four or five hours, you come into the park for four or five hours. And then after that time, you're like, okay, you got to go. Okay. So you're open from seven to let's say noon or one. Now you got to leave and then come. Maybe there's a big wipe down to the park, whatever. Then come two o'clock. You let in a new batch of people. Mm Mm-hmm. And on top of everything, you're not going to have the same maximum capacity. So you're letting up to, let's say, 15,000 people, 15 to 30,000 people at at a time. There's more ability to spread them all over the park rather than commingle them. And you would also shy away from things like um, uh, theater events or parades or whatever. Unless, I mean, I guess you could tape down on the sidewalk to keep families away from other families. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many events and so many things going on at once at Disney. I mean, there's a lot they need to figure out. But, I mean, I guarantee that from the day that they shut down, they were figuring out how we're going to reopen. Yeah. You know. I could see them doing uh, complimentary face shields, you know, giving all the guests face masks, you know, that are mm-hmm. disposable, of course. But, I mean, like, they'd probably have a, a character design Absolutely. on the mail. you got to have fun with it. Um, sure. But, like. And they'll go for in, tons of money on eBay in right. 10 years. You know? Yeah, yeah. And like in in attempting the six foot radius, the the mask further uh, prevents you from spreading to someone within three feet. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I could see it working for a few months. I don't know. I had the thought, you know, with everything going on and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of stories in, in the media and propaganda and then blowing it up and all this other stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, one of my biggest things, you know, sci-fi wise, I really love the original V um, miniseries. I don't know if anybody is uh, familiar with that, but um, I even dug a little deeper and, and did some more research. And apparently, so it was created by Kenneth Johnson. Kenneth Johnson's the same guy that developed the television show of Incredible Hulk, which was a lot oh. different than the comic. Um, yes, but I really enjoyed the television show because it was a lot kind of more realistic. Uh, it was a, it was like a combination of 
taking the comic book character and putting him on this TV series, The Fugitive, which yes. was a man who was accused of a crime he didn't commit, and he's constantly on the run in every episode. Constantly on the run, changing his identity, um, trying to... Yeah, I guess pretty very similar to The Fugitive. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, Kenneth Johnson also did Alienation, mm. which was also... He did very, the movie as well? or Not the movie, just he did the, the TV, TV show. show yeah. Okay. And um, it was a very good series, too, because... It was really good because I was talking to my wife about that uh, yesterday and just brought up the fact that it's really ingenious. Like Alienation and V have a lot of um, stereotypical stuff where they talk about, you know, um, racism Mm -hmm. and other hard topics. But what they do with these series is that, like, instead of signaling out a race, we're just going to make them aliens. Right. That way nobody's offended. Yeah. And I'm like, that's really good. And then you throw their culture into it and you can pretty much have an open book to do whatever you want. Sure. And be racist about, you know, their hair, racist about this or whatever it mm-hmm. is. And nobody can be offended. And it yeah. just creates a really good topic that, that they do. But uh, Kenneth Johnson, I know. So I read up and it said that in the 70s he had this idea and he read this book. Um, it was called It Can't Happen Here. And it was written in 1935, and the book was very well acclaimed, and it was about a man that rises to become president of the United States and then creates a totalitarian government and crushes all his oppressors, and then everything's in a police militaristic state and Mm -hmm. everything, and that's why it's like this, it can't happen here. So he wrote a screenplay, Hmm. and he wanted to do the same thing, and Hmm. he pitched it to NBC, and NBC's like, eh, we like it, but it's a little too cerebral, and the general public's not going to really get into it right so he went back to the drawing board and he changed it instead of that into aliens Mm -hmm. because this is the early 80s yeah and so you had star wars was huge and in fact in the very first episode of v they have the star wars theme in this show i guess lucas gave them the rights Hmm. to the star wars theme, which is actually really really clever the way they incorporated it in and um so he did this whole show and it's and it's very the first, so he did the first two miniseries in 1983. It was two parts, two two-hour-long movies. And then V the Final Battle was the next year, which wrapped up the story. But he was only involved in the first two in 1983. Um, it's very it's, – it's slow but not too slow. There's a lot of characters. And then to see them all come together and to see how the aliens come, it's very – it's done very realistically. Mm-hmm. It's done very – and then they slowly take over. They, they create a cons- false conspiracy – they take over the newspapers. They take over the television stations. They create propaganda. They brainwash people. You know, the whole thing is an allegory to Nazism and, mm-hmm. and the Nazi takeover. Right. Even the little alien symbol looks very much like a swastika. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a thing called the Visitor's Youth, which is exactly like Hitler, Hitler Youth. Youth yeah. um, but it's really, really well done. There's a lot of very good acting scenes, a lot of little quirks into it. Um, if you haven't seen it, I won't give away some of the stuff about it. And I know you said you haven't seen it, so mm-hmm. I'm going to let you borrow the discs. Um, my wife does, is not into sci-fi at all, but I'm like, sit down with me and watch this, especially because of what's going on because of the stuff with like some fake news and a lot of inflated stuff that goes on with CNN nowadays. I said, watch this. And she was like blown away by it. She's like, that was great. She's mm-hmm. like, I want to watch more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a really cool uh, it's a really cool thing, and it's a little, you know, kind of eye-opening to watch that nowadays with everything going on in the media and, and how things have, have transpired in the world. But um, highly recommend to get your hands on a copy of the original V okay. miniseries if you haven't seen it and if you're a sci-fi, sci-fi person. Sure. You know, we never discussed uh, 
Picard, you and I. Um, right. So Carlos and I are in the middle of discussing Picard. We just finished reviewing the uh, Riker and Troy episode. So that's up to where we've finished okay. in our review process. Um, so what is your take on Picard? You were a Next Generation fan. Huge Next Generation fan. I mean, you remember every Saturday night you and I be getting together with our good friend Stefan and we'd be, we'd be watching the episodes together. We... Um, we watched Best of Both Worlds when it was a new episode. Yep. And uh, that was fun because <laughs> I think at the, on that particular night, I was over at Stefan's house for mm -hmm. part one, right? Okay. Yeah, I think I watched it by myself. Yeah. I don't know what was Some, going on somewhere. there. But <laughs> we normally watch, all three of us would watch it together. But uh, that was huge. Like, we, we saw that cliffhanger. We were like, whoa, what's going to happen? So Picard was a Borg and Locutus. And ever since then... The movies can't let it go. It's always got to have something to do with that. And so Picard, same way. We can't let go the fact that Picard was ever a Borg. Right. And that's his biggest uh, life event. Um, Let's see. So you got up to the Riker and Troy episode. You know, it, the show's been very slow for me. I think the episode either, I think right before the Riker and Troy episode was the one where they go to that planet with Seven of Nine. And mm -hmm. she wants revenge over somebody that I think... I can't remember if they had a hand in killing that char other character. Oh, from, from Voyager. Voyager. Mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, I can't remember. Yeah. I, I was, can't remember what his but name was. Yeah, there was another former Borg that uh, Seven of Nine had a, yes. a close relationship with, and then he winds up dying in the beginning of the episode. Or there's a, in a flashback. Yes, yes. So that episode was okay. I mean, I like Seven of Nine's character in the show. I wasn't a huge Voyager fan. I, I actually never sat through the whole series and, and finished it. It just didn't. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, I was a big fan of Deep Space Nine. Me too. Uh, very big fan of that. And Especially then... starting with the introduction of Worf, Worf on the show. Oh my God, seriously. Because up to that point, I've, I've recommended people just watch Star From Trek Worf First on. Contact. Okay. And then start with the Worf episode because he kind of starts in that, or maybe it's Generations. In any case, it's right after one of the movies. Mm -hmm. And then and then he's like, okay, just follow from one of these movies and then just start watching this part of Deep Space Nine and you're, you're following it from Worf's perspective. I think it works well if you're a Next Generation fan. The first few seasons of Deep Space Nine are pretty slow. Mm -hmm. They are. And I don't feel like you really miss out on a lot. Yes, there's some character development, but for the most part, you get it. It doesn't, it's not that hard to follow. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think Worf comes on around season four, and so you got four full seasons of Worf, and, yeah. and that's pretty much, yeah, you can, almost all of those episodes are excellent from Worf comes on and, and beyond that, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, with Picard, I just, you know, I, I don't really like the characters. I know you had mentioned before that Carlos is, like, in love with the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just can't get into these characters. I don't really, I know the one character, um... Uh, Roth, was Rafi, it yeah, the one that lives out in the trailer. Yeah, so I mean, she's you know, got an issue with Picard. She's got an issue with Picard, and then she they had a little brief thing where she has the son, and the son won't talk to her. But just I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have any tie in with the character. You know, yeah. there's a lot of slowness to go ahead and develop these characters, and you know, I I don't care for her character. I don't care for the blonde scientist. You mm -hmm. know, she seems kind of weird, and then horrible when she murders uh, Maddox. Mm -hmm who was her boyfriend or something. Yeah. And uh, there are a few character leaps in logic in just that little bridge crew that he's got going. Cause yeah. like the, the captain somehow falls in love with the doctor, the, the, the blonde scientist doctor and she f falls in love back. And I thought she was just using him via sex to get 
some manipulation out of him. And no, apparently they have real feelings for it. I didn't see this coming from anywhere. I didn't see this set right. up. So, yeah, there were a few leaps in logic. And yeah, killing your boyfriend, Maddox, because, I mean, yes, there's a, a mind meld where she thinks, yes, the world's going to end if we keep developing the synth- synthetics. But still, it, it did seem like a bit of a leap uh, as as a character that I'm supposed to empathize with. Yeah. But having said that, I enjoyed the Troy Riker episode, particularly because it felt to me like a better version of what the movies should have been than what they were. The movies that we saw of Next Generation turn out to be, yeah, there's a little B-plot with the ensemble of Star Trek, but it's really the Picard movie. Right. And I can so see that. In the scenes you see in this episode with Troy and Riker, you get the closest recreation of what we had with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, Mm -hmm. where you have characters who have history together, fondness for each other, and their character traits complement each other very well. Right. Right? So you have your cold logic or diplomacy or empathy or, you know, um, impulsiveness, and they're all working together in sync. And I think both Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, Troy, Riker, and Picard, they they all work together very well in that respect. Unfortunately, the whole series is not about those three. It's about right. completely other characters. So I thought that was a missed opportunity, but it is what it is. Um, there are things that I enjoyed about Picard, Um I, I like the special effects. I like that it is a serialized story and how it's an ongoing storyline mm-hmm. going on and on. It's not half as episodic as other Star Trek series. Uh, right. And, you know, I, I like Patrick Stewart. I like his performance. I, I think he, he does pretty well. And it's nice to see Picard uh, again. Um, but uh, you, you felt a little empty. I felt empty. I felt like he's he's just old. I mean, I, you know, I, I know the man's, what, 76, 77 years old in real life. I, right. I get that. And I know he's playing somebody that's supposed to be like, nine, I think, 90. Yeah, or like 94. Around, or 94, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I get that. But it's just... It's it's just it's just rough. I mm-hmm. yeah. And 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 if the ensemble of characters was a little bit stronger, I mean, you had the the captain was the only one that I could feel a little bit of affinity for. It reminded me like a little bit of a touch of Cassie and Andor. But I wish his 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 backstory was developed a little bit more. It looked like I mean, he opened up a little box and he had like a Starfleet. I guess he used to be Starfleet mm-hmm. or something, yeah. and it never really was like kind of defined very well. Um, so and I, like I said, like the other characters and 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 then you know how every other character on the ship was that guy again in a different role. The doctor, it just mm-hmm. you know maybe a couple of other different characters. Um, also, you know, the Van Halen paint job of the starship. You didn't notice that? No. The thing, look at the paint job of the starship. That's uh-huh. the main starship of the show, and it is red with white stripes, and they're all at like random Eddie Van Halen angles. Oh, really? okay. Yeah, it's like clearly someone's a Van Halen fan nice. in, the, in the prop department. And, you know, I mean, I understand some years have passed and technology is going to change. But, you know, you, you went right to this thing that they do in like every movie where there's those screens that can that are like 3D and they're in front of you. And, you know, it was it was a big jump for me. I mean, look, in the in the 60s, they had the panel and you had push buttons. And then 25 years later, when they did Next Generation, it was the same thing, only it was in push buttons. They were in the computer. So it wasn't like that much had changed. It was just like a little soft smoothing out of the edges to, mm-hmm. to jump another 20 years and to go from that to the other technology 
was almost like going from a typewriter to an iPhone without the in-between for me. <laughs> you know, it was it was a little too much uh, jump ahead that I couldn't couldn't relate to. It wasn't like the Star Trek that I was used to seeing. It didn't, yeah. it didn't feel like Star Trek. I Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It is, it is a bit of a leap um, as far as that, and that is a very overused device. In, in their special effects, like you want to see some advanced technology, watch this. And your people are reaching into the air and controls are appearing out of nothing. And I feel like the reason why that's done is from a cinematography point of view. You want to see the actor's face as they're interfacing with technology, whereas okay. a traditional screen, you couldn't really do that. You would either have a full profile of their side or you would show their face and you would see the glowing hue of the screen. Maybe you would see a projection of the letters from the, the, the screen mm-hmm. in front of their face. So it's more translucent and you can see it that way, but you, you would still, it, it's really, you're just overcoming the problem that a filmmaker is making, which is I need to see the actor's expression while they're interfacing with technology. And I think for the last 10 or 15 years, they've been solving that problem with this fictional technology of let's reach into the air and make things happen. Yeah, I mean, but, I mean, in that way, I thought it got translated fine, and even in Next Generation, like, you know, Worf would be looking down a tactical, and then he would see something that would surprise him, be like, and his expression would change, and Mm -hmm. he'd be like, Captain, we have an incoming, you know, and... But you never saw that display. Like, you would see the keyboard from a distance, but you would never see the actual screen that he's looking at and seeing the information. No, but I felt like I didn't need to see the display. Yeah, I mean, you might be right, but I I, I think... Sometimes too much is overkill. Yeah. I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm 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 into I'm into letting my mind think but go but okay. go. I wanted to ask you one thing. I saw mm-hmm. there's some Back to the Future news that came out. Tell this week me the Back, Back to, to the Future news, Alex. Uh, well, um, so they just uh, Bob Gale was the writer. He just basically I don't know why he just came out now to say this, but he's like I'm just gonna go ahead and fix a plot hole that a lot of people have. And people were like, well, what's your pothole? And he's like, well, you know, everybody's like upset because uh, Marty's parents don't recognize Marty as the person that helped them 30 years before to go ahead and get them together. And that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so he came out and said, listen, I'm going to just break it down logically. He goes that Marty was in 1955 for one week. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even with them for all of that week. He was just there in in little bits and pieces. Mm hmm. 30 years later, now he looks like the same person that was there. They knew this kid is Calvin Klein back then. True. I said, just talk about your own life if you're there, okay? You know, we're both 43. Go back 30 years, you were 13. If mm-hmm. you knew somebody that you interacted with for four days when you were 13 and never saw again the rest of your life, could you identify him that well nowadays and put right. two and two together? Yeah. It would be impossible. Mm-hmm. He goes, mm-hmm. it's not a plot hole. It's just you guys being picky because in your mind, you just saw him there and you just yeah. saw him here. Mm-hmm. But in their in their life, 30 years have passed. That's a long right. time. Oh, for sure, yeah. So he said all these fans are just... And, you know, then you read the comments and people are just like, no, that's not oh, true. no. And yeah, so, I mean, you know, I like that the guy, he kind of stepped up and he said that. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of cool. And, um, you know, I mean... I think the popular, the popular idea was just believing... That Marty actually did, or Calvin Klein actually did sleep with Elaine, but I guess that doesn't match Elaine. up either. You mean Lorraine? Lorraine. Yeah. Thank you. With it's been a long time. That's okay. <laughs> with Jerry Lorraine, Jerry Kramer and George would have been upset about. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Get out. 
but the timeline wouldn't link up because he can't be born 30 years. He'd be a 30 year old. <laughs> He'd be a 30 year old kid. Oh, like he was his own father, like in Terminator. Something yeah. Like that, or something weird. Yeah. That's some, why some he looks so much like him is because, but she, Lorraine hasn't seen him since 1955. Right. So there's no way. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, that was my short little piece of back to the future. Cool. news That I saw come out this week. And I just, I was on the side of, I'm going to agree with Bob Gale. I'm not, not a huge Zemeckis fan, but mm-hmm. you know, Thanks for being on the show. I the absolutely podcast. enjoyed it, Alan. I look forward to doing it again with Me you. Me too. That was Excellent. great. We'll, we'll review another Transformer next time. All right. Or anything else you want to discuss. Or anything else, some other topics, see what mm-hmm. else is going on in the news. And cool. Go from there. Thank you. And uh, please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye.